Alright, last week we went old school. We went Old Testament. And we're going to stay there. Oh yeah. I'm loving the Exodus at the moment. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 1. Mm. So last week we, we skipped through the stories of uh, Abraham and Joseph uh, and uh, landed on Moses. And we left Moses standing before the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And what we were exploring together was uh, how important the wilderness seasons were in shaping these men into who they needed to be. And also positioning and resourcing them for their God-given destiny. Today, I want to continue with that story to see what else that we can take, not just as individuals, but also specifically as a community. What we can learn about the journey we are on with the same God that led the Israelites out of Egypt and from an old season to a new. Does that sound good? You might be into that? All right. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, And leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as storehouses, store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't know what the chuckles are about. I think it's it's a woman thing. I'm also interested in the delivery stool. Question, no. I don't want to know about the delivery stool. 
strike that, please. Back to the word of God. Before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God and gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Well, that got real harsh. This is the world that Moses was born into. Slavery, oppression, and the wholesale slaughter of babies. Now, Moses may have been born into this world, but he was not raised in it. Moses was a Hebrew, and he knew that. He knew who his mother was, but he was never a slave. He was raised as a prince in the the court of the same pharaoh that had commanded his death. Moses may have been a prince, but the palace was not his home. Moses did not know it yet, but his destiny was to lead his people to their true home, a land that God had promised them hundreds of years earlier. The Israelites experienced and saw two faces of Egypt. They came to an Egypt that was ruled by their brother Joseph and a benevolent pharaoh, a man who had come to fear God through his dealings with Joseph. Under this regime, they received protection and they received favor. But when this generation died, a new pharaoh came to the throne. And with him, a new tyrannical regime. And God's people suffered. God's people were forced into slavery. They were beaten. They were abused. Their children were taken from them and killed. And so they suffered. But God had promised Abraham that he would bless those who blessed them. And he would curse those who cursed them. And God keeps his promises. And he had heard the cries of his people in bondage. And the time had come to redeem his people and bring them to their inheritance. Now as bad as their suffering in Egypt was, it did serve one positive purpose. I wonder if you know what that is. The purpose that their suffering served was it motivated them to leave. That might not sound like much, but they needed that. There was a time when Egypt was the best place to live in the known world. When everyone else was experiencing famine, people were dying, Egypt had plenty God had sent Joseph on before to prepare Egypt for the coming famine. And Egypt was a bountiful land. And under Joseph's administration and the Lord's favor, their crops were abundant. And they stored as much of that grain as they could. And so they had not just enough for themselves, but they had enough for so many others as well. 
Egypt is where you wanted to be. And not only was there food, but for God's people in Egypt, there was favor. There was protection. They were given an industry all of their own to thrive in. The industry of of sheep herding that the Egyptians found detestable. The Hebrews loved it. They were good with sheep. They were settled in a fertile land, a very fertile part of Egypt, and they had the Pharaoh's favor. Had nothing changed, could you imagine the growing Hebrew tribes ever wanting to leave? Because you got to a point when there was no one alive, and no Hebrew alive in Egypt who had ever set foot in Canaan. And what memory their people might have had of Canaan was of a land wrecked by famine where they had to flee because there was nothing there for them. But they were in Egypt. And Egypt was good. But Egypt wasn't home. It was just a season in the journey to their destiny, to their inheritance. But they didn't really know that. But then things changed for them in Egypt. And they had to change. I'm sure most of us would prefer not to be pushed. Not to be pushed into what God has for us. But sometimes that's exactly what we need. Sometimes we need some impetus, some motivation to step into what God has. Because even though God's plans are amazing, they can also look to us to be quite daunting. Impossible to achieve. And definitely unsafe. There's this interesting tension in God. He is our protection. He is our shield. But it seems to be really dangerous to follow him. Our inheritance can be secure. Our relationship with him can be strong. But the journey towards our inheritance can be wracked with dangers. Physical dangers. And so stepping out into that is tough because we're, we're human, we're weak. And we can't see a lot of the time the destiny, the vision he has for us because we're afraid of the battles we're going to fight along the way. And Israel had a lot of that. We don't want to be pushed. And we like it to be safe. We like to be secure. We like security. Six years ago, I was secure. I had, a, I had a great job at a great church. A large church. It was a huge, exciting and growing youth community that I was working with. And I really should have been quite fulfilled in that role and in that church. But instead of feeling quite fulfilled, I was quite frustrated. I felt undervalued. I felt like no one really appreciated me or what I was doing. I felt like I wasn't getting a lot of support. I I felt like I was heading in a completely different direction than the other church leaders. And I was beginning to resent people. God's people. But in the midst of this, I actually loved the church. And I loved the families that I had been walking with for over eight years. 
the people that I had served, I had worshipped with, that I had discipled. I just didn't know what to do with this. So I shared my burden with a mentor on eldership, someone I really respected. And his counsel was simple, uh, yet profound. He said, trust that God is at work in your life and in this church. Trust he knows best and go with it and let him do what he has to do. He said, it seems to me like God's just shaking things up. Maybe he has something new in store for you, and he's just loosening your roots to replant you. Mm. Yeah, that's what I needed to hear. It turns out that's exactly what God was doing. And a year later, I was stepping into a new role in a new community here at The Rock. And the truth I would discover was that there was nothing particularly wrong with the church that I left. Except me. Damn. I had, I had attitude problems. And I, I, brought, I brought some of them here. But I found such grace here. There was attitude stuff. There was character stuff. I, th- I thought a, perhaps a little higher of myself than maybe I should have. But Greg sorted me out. <laughs> yeah. And there's stuff there, of course, that I'm still working through. But I, I, what I needed to do was I needed to discover who I really was. And I needed to discover what my destiny really was. Because I had that stuff messed up. And that was wrecking everything. I couldn't be who I needed to be, even at my old church, because I, I had it wrong on who I was and what my purpose was. And so I wasn't nailing it there. And when I came here, I wasn't either. I was trying to be someone that I wasn't. I wasn't, I wasn't stepping into what God had for me. I wasn't stepping into who God said I was. So that's what he's been working me through. The question I needed to be asking in that season of frustration was, what's God doing? What is he doing in me? What is he doing around me? And I needed faith to trust that it, whatever it was, it was good. To claim the promised land, to conquer and occupy Canaan, Israel would need faith in God. They would need courage in the face of stronger enemies and obedience to God's lordship and the governance of his appointed leaders. How would this miserable people ever become the mighty nation they would need to be to fulfill the promise God had given them. Welcome to the wilderness. The wilderness is harsh. The wilderness is barren. The wilderness is an unforgiving wasteland. There's no food. There's no water. And what water there is is bitter. It's just sand and rock and death. Great. Thanks, Lord. The wilderness. Awesome. The wilderness is the place between our past and our future. It is the place between our insecurity and our inheritance. Israel was insecure because they didn't know who they were. And it's the same for us. 
the tribes of Jacob had lost their identity. They no longer saw themselves as God's chosen people. They saw themselves as slaves. And slaves don't inherit anything. Sons do. It was a slave mentality that drove them to cry out at the first hint of any danger as they left Egypt. Exodus chapter 14 verse 11. They cried, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. First sign of any opposition. And a while later, while migrating north to Canaan, they cried out again. But this time, because they were bored of the food that God was miraculously providing for them every morning. Numbers 11, verse 4. The rebel with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, or so the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna that miraculously falls from the sky every morning and apparently tastes delicious like some kind of honey cake. Sick of honey cake miraculously falling from the sky. Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. The food's better. Despite witnessing God display his power through ten ferocious and spectacular plagues and being released from bondage with the great wealth of Egypt on their backs and being miraculously provided for in the desert, their first response was, we had better food in Egypt. We should have stayed slaves. The truth was... They still were slaves. Legally, they were free. They weren't in Egypt. The Pharaoh had released them. But inside, they were still slaves. Inside, they were still locked up in bondage. What have we still got locked up inside? We are free. Jesus has redeemed us. I'm going to take a stab, a wild guess, and assume that a majority of the people in this room have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. We can claim him as our Redeemer. We can sing, I am free. But what is still locked up inside? What insecurities? What hurts? What baggage? What identity issues are still locked in here that are holding us back from stepping out into the destiny God has for us and reaching out for the inheritance that he has? Technically, we may be free, but are we living it? 
God's plan is to restore his people to the land that he had promised his faithful servant Abraham. But that restoration would require much more than just a change of location. It needed a change of heart and a change of identity. Israel was weak and faithless. Israel did not know or trust their one true God or his appointed leaders. They grumbled and complained constantly. And the first chance they get, they have Aaron make a golden calf to worship while Moses is on the mountain receiving the covenant that would bind his people to him for the next 1,500 years, a covenant that would codify their relationship. So he's up there receiving the most phenomenal revelation ever, and they're down having a party around a foreign god. God obviously had a bit more work to do in them. And it would start with this. Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's male or female servant, or their ox or their donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. You think that that pretty much all goes without saying, right? It should do. These people had grown up in Egypt. They'd grown up in a land without this God. Who knows where their moral compass was? But they needed everything spelled out for them because they didn't know what was up and what was down. They didn't know what was right and what was wrong. They'd been living in a pagan land. They'd been oppressed in that land. They'd been abused. One thing I saw in my earlier ministry is that abuse breeds abuse. Abused people often can't help but be abused. They needed a framework to live in and understand who God was and what it meant to follow him. 
And so God gave them the law. He gave them a godly law, a righteous law that would separate them from the pagan peoples of the world. God gave them a moral compass, his moral compass, a guide that would show them how to live to honor and love him and their neighbor. And after this, in the wilderness, God gave them worship, godly, righteous worship. He gave them sacrifice. He gave them an encounter with him. He gave them priests, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, his presence. All of this he gave them in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they learned right from wrong. And then in the wilderness, they learned how to worship and how to do, how to do church. But that wasn't enough. They still didn't see themselves for who they really were and God for who God really was. They had religion now, good religion, but religion. And religion doesn't save. And so when they finally camped in northern Sinai at Kadesh and sent spies into Canaan, to explore the land in Numbers 13, they could not see the bounty that God had promised or believe in Caleb's testimony that this land was winnable. All they could hear were the reports of enemies and obstacles. Numbers 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose another leader. And go back to Egypt. Mm. Now, as, as, I, as I read this story through Exodus and Numbers, the story of, of the amazing way that God liberated his people from Egypt and how he protected them, provided for them through this long. 40-year journey through the wilderness and how he then led them into the promised land and led them through victory after victory to claim the land. This stumps me at how they could, how they could just constantly forget what God had done for them, how they could forget the plagues, how they could forget uh, the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh just decimated like that, how they could forget every blessing of God that they received every day to end up here in a position to launch in and claim the promise and once again throw it away. We can't do it. We can't win this. Let's go back to Egypt and to slavery. Let's go back to the way things were. I, 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 that just makes no sense to me. I feel like if I was in that situation that... Um, that surely I'd feel different. 
Surely I'd be, I'd be like Caleb. Surely we all would. Surely we'd approach it with faith. What's interesting though is that we, we do something very similar in the church now. God raises up new vision. God raises up leaders to lead his people into this new vision. And it's hard. And things change. Things are different. And whenever things start to get tough for us, we think, you know what? I like things the way they were. I like the way we used to do church. I like the programs we used to run. I like the time that we met. That was convenient for me. I like the songs we used to sing. I like the way that, that preacher used to preach. I like the old vision. This new church, what the rock's becoming. I don't know. I don't think I want this. I want what I used to have. I'm using this example because this is where I am. This is, this is where I am. But I know that this happens in churches all over the place. And it's not just that people are resistant to change. It's that people have something locked inside them that they can't let go of. Because they can't let go of it, they can't let God lead them. The Israelites were primed to finally push north into Canaan to take possession of the land that God had promised them. But their fear and their lack of faith drove them back to their old identity, back to slavery. And as a result of their lack of faith, as a result of their rebellion, their generation would never see the promised land. Every single one of them would die in the desert. And it would be the next generation that would claim the promise of the descendants of Abraham as sons of the kingdom. So what are we? Are we slaves or are we sons? And I use sons generically for us all as those who receive the inheritance. What has God been doing here over the last three years? The word we received was this. Who you were is not who you are now. And who you are now is not who you're going to be. We are not the church we once were. But we're not yet who God intends us to be. We're not finished yet. God still has a work to do in us. If we let him. Here's the thing. As powerful as God is. There's this whole free will thing. Which is such a burden. God might give us a push and a prompt. But he doesn't make us do anything. He didn't make that generation of Israel march into Canaan. They had a choice and they rebelled. And so they received the consequences of that. God wants to do a work in us. He was trying through hundreds of years in Egypt and through that crucial time in the wilderness to shape them into who they needed to be. But they wouldn't let him. And so they died in the desert. A 
whole generation of the Israelites that left Egypt did not see and claim the promised land because of their lack of faith and their broken identities. They couldn't get the Egypt out of them. They would not let God change their hearts. How many times did Jesus hear, show us a sign, show us a sign. How many signs did he actually give them? How many signs did Moses give Israel? Did God give Israel? Signs all the time, but it still didn't change the hearts. A whole generation died in the desert. But we are not that generation. Many of us have left this church over the last few years. Many have left because they could not see or believe in the vision that God was leading us into. But not us. We're still here. And we have come into this new vision. We are still trusting. And that faith will be rewarded. Why did Israel need the wilderness? They needed the wilderness to learn that they were not slaves. They needed the wilderness to learn to trust God, to learn obedience, to learn to follow, to learn to worship, to learn to encounter God, to learn to appreciate the simple things in life, to prepare them for battle, and to prepare them for their destiny. God is preparing us here at the rock as well. He is preparing us for the destiny that he has for us. We are in the wilderness. And that is not a bad thing. He is refining us with fire. And that is a good thing. 1 Peter 1 Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we're not doing things the way we used to here. A lot of stuff is different, and maybe you do prefer the way things used to be. But it's, it's not about our preferences. It's not about what is convenient or what suits us. It's not about our tastes. God has the most amazing destiny for us. It's not about your career or, or about the wealth you can accrue. I'm talking about a destiny of the kingdom of God. Everything else pales in comparison to that, if we can see it. What I need you to hear this morning is that the old has gone and the new has come. And it is coming like a train. And God's will, his plan, will not be stopped. It's going to happen. The, the question is, are we going to be on board that? Are we going to be a part of this? Or are we going to die in the desert? The desert that we make for ourselves. The desert that we furnish with the things that make us comfortable. The desert might, that might look like a palace, but it's a palace in Egypt. Not God's promise.
We're not going back. We will press on in faith into an unknown spiritual landscape, but trusting God all the way. This last two years in particular for me has been hard and amazing because I'm a guy who needs to know. I just need to know stuff. I need to understand it. I need to comprehend. And then I need to be able to articulate it and regurgitate it to other people so they know I know. And I don't know anything anymore. I thought I had it all sorted out. But God has led me into what has become unknown spiritual landscapes. I don't know the land. And I've just just had to just trust him and just go and just walk with him. Because he loves me and he knows me as he's journeyed with me into this unknown spiritual landscape that I find my faith to be now, he whispers along the way and gives me understanding as I go. And that is my journey. And that was the journey that the wilderness was supposed to be. And it is the journey of this church as well. We will continue to push on into a vision that can only be fulfilled in God's strength, in God's way, and in God's timing. And I really want to believe that we're the people that are going to do this. I want to believe, I have to believe, that it's this generation. Not the next generation, or the one to come, but us. We need to be the people that say, yes, God. I will do this. I will step into this vision. I will let you do the work in me that you want to do. I will surrender my life to you. Not just in a prayer, but in reality. I will let you be the Lord of my life, of my time, of my finances. I will trust you for the direction of my family. My goal when my life is heading is kingdom, the building of your kingdom. And where you go, I will go. I don't believe that this is a new message. I've been in a church my whole life. And I think I've heard elements of this throughout that whole time. I think God goes to every generation and, and lays out the same deal. This is what I want to do. Let's do it. But generation after generation is locked in something else. They're distracted by the world. Their heart is still in Egypt. And so they say, no thanks. I want to go back to the way things used to be. But that can't be us. Is that okay? Okay, give me a second. I'm feeling quite a stir on that. I really feel this strongly that we are at that point now to choose to step into this and embrace it for all that we have with all we can and I don't want I don't want my time here to be wasted I don't want to miss out on what God has I want to see the coming of the glory of the Lord I want to see his kingdom established in this land I want to see his name glorified in this nation I want it to be now and I believe God wants it now but I believe he can wait another generation too so let's not let that happen, okay? Is that all right? You feeling that? Yeah, I want my, I want my life to count for something.
And I know that my life is just one life of 250, 300 other lives here. And together in this church, God will do powerful things. It's not about me. It's not even about this church. It's about his kingdom, his destiny. Are you up for this? Can we do this? All right. That's the message. That's it. But it means nothing if that doesn't actually change something in our lives. What does that mean for us when we walk out the door? Israel heard all of that stuff. They had Moses and Aaron leading them. They got the word of God directly. But it didn't change that generation. So what we need, we need soft hearts to receive that. And we need concepts, mindsets, identity stuff to be broken down. We need God to show us who we really are. That we are sons and daughters of the kingdom. That we are not slaves to that materialistic machine out there. We're not slaves to our jobs. We are his children. We are children of destiny, children of inheritance. But that's got to change the way we live our lives. Doesn't mean we all quit. Go home and write a resignation letter. God wants you. God wants you in your jobs. That's kingdom influence out there in the marketplace. If we all lived here doing my job, how good is that? I'm useless in the world. But this changes the way that we engage with people. This changes the decisions we make. We're looking in every decision for the kingdom decision. How does God want to work through me in this circumstance? God, what is your will here? And surrendering that to him. And our relations with, with, our, with our partners, with our children, with our friends, our wider families, we are winning people to kingdom and God's destiny for them. Every, every turn, there is a way to turn people towards God. But it means putting everything else aside. God's plan, God's goal, God's promise, that becomes our desire. All right. I could probably bang on about that for another couple of hours. So um, let's just let that settle. Let's let that percolate. And I want, I want to pray with you now.